Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And as you know, each week, twice a week, we bring you brand new cutting-edge military histories from around the world. I like to say we're on the front line of military history, and I can prove it. Go back through our well over 200 episodes in our back catalogue, and I guarantee you'll find so many episodes that you're going to love. And if you think we're missing a history, then you know what to do. Get in contact directly on warfare at historyhit.com. Now, once a week, I like to delve deep in the Dan Snow's History Hit archive to pull out an episode that I think deserves a little bit more attention, and it is 2022. That marks 40 years since the start of the Falklands War, and all through April we'll have special episodes with Falklands veterans to mark that anniversary. But this episode sees Dan talk to Danny West and... Cedric Delves. Now, Cedric was the man who commanded D Squadron 22 SAS, and Danny was second in command. Dan hears the incredible stories of raging seas, inhospitable glaciers, hurricane force winds, helicopter crashes, and SAS raids behind enemy lines. In essence, we hear every bit of the SAS in the Falklands. This is part one. We'll release part two next Wednesday. But right now, here is Dan, Danny, and Cedric with the SAS in the Falklands. Enjoy. Thank you both very much for coming on the podcast. I should probably ask you, for every time I talk to a Falklands restaurant, I should start by saying, had you ever given a moment's thought to the Falkland Islands before you were told you were deploying there? No idea where they were. In fact, it sounded like they came. They were somewhere in Scotland, but I knew that wasn't true. And I had to be told where they were on, on the map, and I thought, crikey, that's a long way away. Well, it is a long way away. I'm not sure exactly how far, but it's got to be about 12,000 miles. I've got to say, I think I vaguely knew where they were. When you heard the news that you were going to be fighting a conventional... I mean, I, you know, when, I'm not going to talk about what you'd been doing before in Arthur Falklands, mm. but, but in the 1980s... Um, and and nineties was a perception that Western special forces would probably be fighting different kinds of war. When when you heard that you'd be fighting a dare I call it a kind of conventional war against a a, a well matched uniformed opposition, did that did that come as a did that come as a surprise? And, and do you feel you were prepared for that? Well, we'd like to think that we're prepared for most things, but I don't think it entered our head that we are about to enter into a 
a, a conflict like like it panned out to be. And all the way down there, there were um, negotiations going on in America with uh, General Haig, who was very keen to um, call a truce here in, in the Falklands. But of course, we were concerned that if he did that, then... <laughs> well, there was two things. There was two things, really. If he, if he did that, we wouldn't have a war, as Cedric says. Also, they would hold on to whatever they had considered it winning so far. I mean, they were holding the Falklands. So if there was a negotiation, they could say something, OK, we'll keep this bit and you can have that bit. But um, that was never on the cards. That was not on the menu. I mean, they had to leave. And to get them out of there, it had to be some sort of conventional conflict. But I don't think we'd actually worked that out at this stage. No, it didn't really work like that. Um, as I recall it, there's the business of the scrap metal men. Didn't really take that very seriously. It seemed to be a bit of fuss over nothing. Do you remember? Yeah, that's the, that's the, the chaps who landed on... South Georgia without, without a licence and started dismantling Leith, I think it was. They had um, these huge phosphor bronze propellers that apparently are worth a fortune, and they'd been left there by whalers. Yeah. Well, and the whaling station was stuffed full of asbestos, apparently, so it wasn't very clever. Didn't really take that seriously. And then a short period later than that, we then find that the uh, the islands had been invaded and it was incensed. And there was just a natural assumption, we just made a natural assumption, that you know there, there would be... Well, there's going to be some operation to try and sort of rectify that, we guessed. And um, that we would be part of it. That just didn't come across our minds that we wouldn't be part of it. But actually, that, that's about as far as we went. But precisely what we're going to do weren't that clear. But something something would emerge. And um, in the way of these things, we'd sort of try and find that that particular thing that will go, you know, help the special, the uh, conventional force. Um, yes, we were planning on the way down how we were going to get ashore. We were looking at people like um, your man, what was his name, who's buried there, um, how he got there. and It sort of worked like this. So the crisis breaks and we just assume we're going to be part of it. Mike Rose, who was the commanding officer at the time, is spinning around the place, talking to people, most particularly through commander brigade, spent quite a bit of time down there, persuading people we, we were needed. In the meantime, his operations officer, Ian Crook, was getting on with stuff. And um, I think Ian was the one who just got us away. Uh, he had made some sort of arrangement that we would get down to Ascension Island and um, get on board something called an RFA. Um, it has a particular name, Fort Austin. And that was about it. And then... Um, so, so you slightly invited yourselves to the party? Well, the story goes that the Prime Minister, at a later date, went down to fleet headquarters at Northwood uh, to be briefed on, on what was going on. I mean, this was a little bit later. And she discovered that the special forces, the SAS, in fact, I mean, the SAS had been deployed. And she asked this room of people, uh, who, who was it exactly authorised the deployment of the SAS? And there was a silence, apparently. So the story goes. That's a good story. And then a voice sort of pipes up at the back saying, uh, Prime Minister, I think the SAS authorised themselves. <laughs> and that, that could well be right. But I do remember going in to see the commanding officer before we went down to Bryce Norton to get the flight down to Ascension. And um, I don't know, it's in the book, but he was agitated about something. I had to wait. 
and he got off the phone. He'd been talking to his wife Angela, and the, the he was they were at the, they were concerned about a carpet going into the mess. It was a particularly busy carpet. I mean, to disguise foot traffic, which it did with sort of real vengeance. Um, and it did go into the mess because once everything sort of starts, you know, you can't stop some institutional wheels from turning. So this this carpet went in. Anyway, pretty long story. Uh, I said, look, I, you know, he, he was going on about the carpet a bit. And I said, look, I'm sorry, I've got to go. Oh, yeah, I've got to, got to go. Yes, of course, he said, just because, well, where you go then? Got as far as the door. He said, oh, wait, wait, hang on a second. You better, um, I better tell you what to do. This is a true story. But I'll tell you what to do. And he sort of paused and he said, um, Go on, notebook. <laughs> yep, pencil. I didn't answer that. And uh, he said, um, Direct action. Well, that's the first thing on the regimental slide we just sort of briefed to uh, visitors. And so I knew what was likely to come next, and it did. And the next one was um, information reporting. And I knew the third one was going to be a real problem because at the time the third one was operating with indigenous forces, partisans, and of course there weren't any down there. And there were some penguins, and, this, and the population was, you know, under the control of the Argentinians. So I wondered what was going to come next. And you see, he was a bit puzzled as well. But then eventually got it, and that sort of might raise away his face lit up. And I said, I, yeah, I got it. He said, uh, specialist assistance to amphibious operations. <laughs> said, said, said with a grin, and that's, we went off to war with that. And that, you know, that's what we went with. What does direct action mean? It means um, coming close to the enemy and um, and breaking stuff. Yes. Mm. It's it's, uh, it's the offense. Yes, it's the it's everything from demolitions, closing with um, standoff attacks, all, all this sort of breaking stuff, as opposed to the gathering information stuff and so on. So it was. It was that sort of thing. And then, um, as I say, we got ourselves down to, to Ascension. You were young men. You, you, this is what you joined for. You must have been incredibly exciting. We're still, we're still young men. Oh, I, I'm your prime of life. But, I mean, you were ch- almost ch- children at that point. Yes, indeed. Yeah, uh, but an opportunity like this would arise, you know, once every five lifetimes. It was, it was amazing. We just couldn't believe our luck. And I'm sorry to ask the question that all civvies asked, but did he not worry that someone would get killed and hurt? Soldiers don't tend to worry about that sort of thing. You know, a soldier is more concerned about supporting the guy on the right and the left of him. OK, it's a, it's a hazard that we have to put up with that now and again people get hurt, but it's not something that's foremost in their mind. And when people say, oh, it's such a shame Tommy went down here and he got hurt down there, Tommy wasn't that worried about it. You know, so you shouldn't feel sorry for Tommy. That's what he gets paid for, and that's what he's volunteered to do. Yeah, I was struck by some of the... Um, there was a wonderful piece of television made recently, redigitizing old First World War films. I'm sure you saw it. Um, and there was a piece around the back, you know, people had gone through all that horror of the Western Front and that sort of thing, and they said, you know, wouldn't have missed it for anything. We went through similar, you know, we, you know there were some bad moments in this war, you know, I mean, we, may, we may make a few jokes in a moment, that sort of thing, but it was a hard war, and we lost a lot of people. 21 people did not come back. Um, but, you know, you would ask every, any member of the squadron, they would say, wouldn't have missed it for anything. And if they were told that one in three of us wouldn't come back, they would still have gone to a man. Strange. Now we can't. We, we won't talk about anything else. We just we're gonna, we've agreed we'll talk about what happened inside the um, the area of operations. Uh, what around the Falklands Archipelago? Uh, when it became clear that you would be needed to take direct action, 
Um, and what what form did that take? Were you going to go in before the main amphibious assault or, or during, after? Well, let me tell you how it unfolded, um, actually. So we get to Ascension, and we're, we're instructed by Ian Crook, really, to get on Fort Austin, which we do, and then we sail off, heading south. Um, we then hear that a task group has been formed to go down to South Georgia, to take back South Georgia. It's a sort of quick win, low-hanging fruit type thing, I should imagine. People think you can do this. And we were instructed to put the um, the mountain troop um, on board to assist that, uh, which we did. We met we met uh, Endurance, who'd done very well down there, and had come away very well down there um, with a small detachment of Royal Marines. Pretty brilliant. Um, so we put the mountain troop on. They sailed off south. <laughs> leaving the rest of us behind. We weren't very happy about that, I'll tell you. And I, I was in concern because the, you know, it fragmented the squadron. You know, I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen, but it didn't sound like a good idea to spread across the, ourselves across the South Atlantic. And the rest of the task group was coming down, and we have going to RV with her and replenish, resupply at sea. It's called RAS, the Navy called it. We were starting to pick up Navy language as well. Um, so we are going to RAS the rest of the task group a few days later. And Danny and I sort of talked about this and thought there's an opportunity here to get the rest of us on it. And we, we did. We, we blagged our way effectively. Hitchhiked our way down to the South Atlantic. We blagged our way onto this operation. So there was one squadron deployed. Yeah. One, there's one squadron got away quick and fast. There's D Squadron, our sister squadron, G Squadron, who's best equipped for this type of stuff, incidentally, because they go every year to um, Norway and operate with the Royal Marines, uh, come in behind us. And they assume the advance force operation, the surveillance operation, and put eyes on all the settlements uh, around the Falklands eventually. No, but they're, they're a couple of weeks behind us. Meanwhile, we've blagged our way into an operation and gone south. So, so you, were, you were all going to South Georgia, not just one troop? The whole lot were going to South Georgia. And, and you were in command of, therefore, how many men? 66-ish. Well, the group would be, yeah, the, the group all up to with the signals and so on, probably about 75, actually, yeah. probably ish. Yeah. When you got to South Georgia, what, what did you find there and what were you asked to do? There's a land force commander, of, uh, a man called uh, Guy Sheridan, Royal Marines, very good indeed, and we subordinated ourselves. Then we together started developing a plan for it, and it has to be fairly generic, and it, you know, we, we too um, decided it must start with a reconnaissance so we can see exactly what we've got on our hands before we work out how to get them off the islands or defeat them. And there's a Royal Marine Company available for that. So we're, we're down there to, having blagged our way in, to assist on the advance force stuff to get the information and then, well, we'll depend on what we find, release the Marines to sort the problem out. That, that's it in broad generic terms. It didn't work out that way, of course, I mean, because things intervene, weather most particularly. And can I just ask how it works between you two? Because you are having these discussions. You, are you, is it fair to say you're thinking about what you're going to do when you get there? Danny, is it, is it, would it right to say that you are taking part in the discussions or are you thinking about making sure the men are ready for whatever these guys cook up? Well, the thing is both, isn't it? Um, in, in fact, we had a, a headquarter element that involved Geordie Woods, and we had the Sergeant Major Lawrence Gallagher, both of whom sadly are dead now, Lawrence, in the um, in the helicopter crash. But we'd sit round, usually over a beer or something like that, if we could get a beer, and it's always good when we could. Yeah. Uh, 
And we'd, you know, we'd just bounce this off each other. And between you, me and the gatepost, I don't think I've ever said, said, said this to Cedric. But now and again, Lawrence used to go, oh, <laughs> he was he was trying to get off, you know, because Cedric, you know, he's thorough if, if nothing else, and he'd just go round and round. Yeah, oh, yeah, but what if? What if? What if? What if? It's just going. <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah, but that, you've got a plan. Okay, we'll go with that. That's that's good. Right, well done, Cedric. That's fantastic. <laughs> let's go. On. Yeah, but he, he obviously took it more seriously than we did because we were worried at the time that this, this guy, General Haig, was going to persuade somebody to. Um, to persuade the Argentinians to get off the island before we got there. And that would never have done, having made the trip. It's not that we were anxious, you know, to close with the enemy and, and hurt him. It's, it's not that at all. It's just that you train for a particular job, and here was an excellent opportunity to exercise our skill against his. And, and can I ask how, uh, how, it, how it would differ if you were in a... a... Um, another unit, a, a regular army unit, because you're, you're, you're going down there, you're confident the men under your command are some of the fittest, most highly trained, highly motivated men in, in the British Army. Um, so, so therefore, does that make your job easier, harder, more different to, to if you'd been in a, 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 a normal infantry battalion? If I could perhaps have a go, a first stab at that. Just recently, um, I was in conversation with Helen Parr, who's written a book about the the uh, parish regiment and uh, and uh, I read her book you know we're going to have a conversation down at Hay uh, which we did the other day and I was slightly concerned about it I sort of read a book and you know this really is the harsh realities of war her book I mean you know this is it, it talks about you know the sort of the violence that it employed and that sort of stuff and I thought shoot and you know the book I just read in this looks rose tinted by comparison but then I sort of reflected that actually we in some ways special forces are fortunate um, the, there is the yes we do have to go behind the enemy lines in inverted commas that sort of stuff and it, it has its own demands and if you get caught back there you're you're small in number and the chances are it's not going to be very good for you so it actually carries its its own sort of worries and hazards but you know we generally um, have to operate like this we, we are small in number we make a virtue of it and you, you, you choose as far as it's practical your place as well as your time most certainly you should be choosing your time you, you optimize the time against the place against the numbers and you mitigate your your s small size in in these sorts of ways so in other words you have choices um if you're in the big battalions yeah. and your commander wants you to go up that hill now yeah. that's what you do yeah, yeah. but it, well, it, it it's it's it surprises me really when you think of that, because we, we take it for granted the way that we used to operate. I mean, everybody's got an opportunity to put his oar in. And if it makes sense, then people will listen to him. If it doesn't make sense, we'll tell him to wind his neck in. But in an infantry battalion, as Cedric says, you don't get that opportunity. You know, you just do as you're told. And... Well, it, it gets close and grubby at Candy Cut, and it did for those battalions that went down there. Sure. And they did really, really well. I mean, uh, yeah. Right, so talk to me. You, you arrive off uh, South Georgia. To, I guess to tell me about the weather, the geography. Um, did the plan go out the window at first contact with the enemy? You know, the old cliche. Yeah, absolutely it did. <laughs> uh, very dramatically, actually. Well, um, so you, we, there's a division of labour emerges. Uh, it appears the Argentinians in two places. They're still at Leith, the scrap metal men, and they're at Gritvecon, which is the sort of capital of South Georgia, for that's where the administrative centre is. 
And of the two, grit vehicle is more important. And there's no there's no argument. We blanked our way in, and the Marines will have grit vehicle, and we will deal with leith. And so we started looking at leith, and how do you get ashore at leith? Um, there was two broad options. You either sort of use the helicopter to meet available to get on ashore and then move in from there, or you use the boats. We didn't like the idea of the boats. Uh, we were always worried about the outboard motors. They were old and worn. I mean, it may come as a surprise to people, but, you know, they, they dated from the 60s. Um, and more about that in a second. So we decided we would fly, and then you sort of look at how you're going to do that. These were not night-capable helicopters. They were just general helicopters. So you couldn't fly into Stromness Bay. Everything was visible at Stromness Bay, so it had to be sort of outside of that. And the only place outside of that, really, where you could sensibly land, because we tested the... We produced um, an overlay to see what where the noise might reach out. Um, pushed us back onto the Fortuna Glacier. Doesn't sound like a good idea, does it? Um, and nobody was very happy with that. Guy Gerardin, in particular, is a very accomplished climber, advised strongly about against going onto the Fortuna, and he, he, he was right in a way. Um, concentrating particularly on the difficulties of it, so getting across it and crevasses and that sort of stuff. We were taking advice um, from others back in the UK who had actually gone across it more recently, and we knew that Shackleton had done it. So we were sort of confident we could get across. Endurance, to be fair, um, was advising don't do it, not just crevasses. Um, Nick Barker, who was the captain of uh, Endurance, knew the area very well, and he was aware that we were in a bad, bad period for weather. And it was, it was normally volatile down there because it was pretty damned hostile at that time of year, and he was, he was just simply said, don't do it. Um, well, we did do it. Uh, it took a while to get the troop onto the um, glacier, which we did successfully, but not without a great deal of difficulty in appalling conditions. I mean... This is outside of gale force winds. This is the next scale up. Whatever is the next one up. Um, hurricane force winds. Huge winds. Anyway, we got them on. Was there, was there an abort option or, or, or not? Well, I suppose there would have been, but we were pressing on, weren't we? And we were determined to get on, um, which we did. So, so you landed lots of helicopters on, on a glacier in a, in a hurricane? Three, three helicopters involved. There's a helicopter called Humphrey, and the Navy regard their... Um, Helicopters as male, and the ships as female, so there's ribald stuff, as you can imagine. Um, anyway, Humphrey was uh, an anti-submarine warfare helicopter crewed by someone called Ian Stanley, who turned out to be a heroic man, um, and he would lead these helicopters. And he would lead, anyway, he led them up to the top of the, the uh, Fortuna Glacier in, in appalling conditions and dropped off the troop, and there's a story attached to that as well. But um, anyway, they got on, and then the weather turned really bad. From bad to worse. <laughs> what caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And um, had, had your training prepared you for, the, for those kind of conditions? No, I, I don't think anybody could have been prepared for that. I mean, they knew it would be bad, but they didn't know it was going to be that bad. I mean, as soon as it's, 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 it's dark, your tent has been blown away, there's a hundred mile an hour gale freezing in your face, you're disoriented. You know, I, I, I think it was, it was miraculous that, but that we managed to get them, get them off. They survived the night. We, we, we were offshore trying to maintain station. It was really, really bad, unbelievably bad, the seas, huge, mountainous, and this is on the shelter side of uh, South Georgia. And they say it was so bad that the captain at one stage, he said, if, if there's anybody who would like to see this sea state, can you come up a couple at a time? He says, and tell your grandchildren about this. He'd been at sea for th- 20 years or so, and he'd never seen anything like it. And, you know, we all thought it was... Spectacular! We didn't realise the danger that we were in. Seriously, I, well, I certainly didn't. I was, I, I was watching this wave up here, you know, and it was like a roller coaster. The next thing you're looking down here, you know, you're on top of that wave that's just. And and that's on the lee side of the island. It's on the sheltered side of the island, and that was the you know. Meanwhile, the, you know, the, these huge the, the ship was shrieking with the wind up. You could hear. It. And I can remember going past this. So there was a plate on one of the sort of central passageways, sort of thing that said, you know, built by. Uh, they governed the shipyard, you know, and I thought, well, I hope they got the rivets right. And um, the poor thing was being, you know, really pounded. It wasn't a young ship. Well, a thousand foot up, you've got the mountain troop, you know, 
even worse conditions. And we knew what was like, likely to happen the following day, and it did. We got the call to take them off. They had lost equipment. They were in a dangerous state. They were facing cold casualties. And we all know that once you start going down, within, you know, you, take, you get your first casualty, you know that probably everybody else is about to go down as well. They had to come off. And that's when the, the, the real heroism starts. Ian Stanley and his crew, with Chris Perry down the back, who's a mate, lead the helicopter off to go and get them off. Uh, I can't remember how many times they have to try it, but they eventually make it, um, load, load up, start to come off the glasses of the first helicopter crashes. They pick up then everybody, the second helicopter crashes. We're now down to one helicopter. One helicopter which is optimized, it's only got one engine. Um, and it's, and it's uh, an anti-submarine warfare helicopter. It's got no room in it. You know, you can just about squeeze another few people in the back. Pick up what they can, take them back to Antrim, mother. Uh, Chris actually says, as they're flying, flying back, they get down to sea level with the with whatever survivors we got, and he comes up on the radio and tells Antrim that um, they've just lost their two chicks, I think he calls them, just lost their two chicks mm-hmm. as he's returning to mother. And they know what that means. Um, anyway, he drops them off, and then after a while, tries to tries to um, go back, and eventually goes back to see what he can do about the others. And uh, they manage to get to to the base of the glacier. It's not going to work. The weather's really come in, and the winds are right up again. So the and the day's running out. Uh, so he decides to change a plan amongst the crew. They all are involved. They're all on the all on the, the intercom. Yes, they'll do this. And they go vertically upwards through the cloud, which is relatively thin, but they go up above it, get up to about 2,000 feet, and there's glorious sunshine on the top there, looking down, cloud below, and they're trying to find a gap. So, and eventually a gap emerges, and lo and behold, they actually see the helicopter down there, and they dive down. And this is the, uh, if that's not uh, spectacular enough, well, this is the fleet, the fleet air arm at its best. Fantastic. They then load everybody, and I think it's 17 people, if I got the numbers right, uh, survivors. And a helicopter that's, that's supposed to carry four. <laughs> barely lift itself with his four-man crew and his kit, and he flies it. You know, and the moment he starts, he knows he can't hover. He can barely get it off the, uh, the glacier. But the winds are very strong, and actually that gives it, it encourages him to give it a go because it's, it's giving him lift. And he just manages to get this poor helicopter off the, off the glacier and down and then goes out to sea. And I'm, by the, you know, I'm standing on the back of Antrim at this stage and sort of you know, watching them. I can see her emerge out of the mist. And you can see that it's struggling. Uh, it's barely above the waves. And you normally come to the back of a ship and come to one side and then move across. And it gives you options, you know, if everything goes wrong. Ian couldn't do that. He couldn't hover it at all. He just came in and smacked it on the ground, and you got seventeen people come out there. Yeah. Unreal. He's a hero. Yeah. And so, not and no enemy has been spotted. No. Um, how many casualties have you taken so far? Well, fortunately, none really. I mean, there's uh, a lot of early indications of cold injury, the beginnings of frostbite and that sort of stuff. But everybody makes a recovery. We got them off in good time. Mm. Another night out, we might have lost them. Yeah. And, and you, they survived the helicopter crash then? I mean, it presum- oh, yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, to be fair, I mean, this is the skill of the pilots. I mean, they, um, 
you know, as they take off, they're hit by these high winds which are carrying snows on, and then they go into whiteout conditions. It's like peering through milk. You know, they're, they're completely disorientated. And the um, here's an interesting thing. The, the helicopters that crashed are, are one up. There's one pilot in the cab, nobody in the left-hand seat or the right-hand, whichever one it is. They're, they're on their own. They don't know whether to look out or look at the instruments or both at the try to do both at the same time. Um, almost inevitably, I suppose, under those conditions, this happens. But they, they are skilled and they prevent um, these crashes from being catastrophic uh, with, with their skill. So, yeah, okay, so we lost the helicopters, but they didn't lose the people. Um, and we're feeling pretty bad about this because here we are now. Not only have we bounced off and failed to get our wrecky in, but we've, we've caused the loss of two helicopters. Yeah, we'd more or less said we can do this, this is, and they trusted us, and we felt in some way we had let them down. And, but but thanked our lucky stars and our gods, etc., that um, that it wasn't, it could have been a lot worse. And we, we were all, and we were all up and running. And if you think that's bad, then what happens is that uh, that very day, we got them back onto Antrim late afternoon, it's beginning to get dark. In the meantime, we'd warned off Ted Inshaw, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the boat troop commander, um, that he's, gonna, he's now on and make a plan with the navigator and others whilst we sort out this mess, which he's done. And uh, he then sort of um, puts, puts his plan to us. That, that very evening, so we've suffered this. Uh, you know, this that's worth noting. You know, we're we, we're carrying on, and we're feeling pretty bad about things. And here's the other good thing too: is that the the navy don't point any accusing fingers. They're really good about it. I don't say you bloody lost our helicopter. Right? You know, they had every right to do that, but they didn't. They're not. They're not. Yeah. Well, they're not going to lay on the pressure unnecessary. That can come later. And nor did Guy, God bless him. You know, everybody's just sort of, well, well, that wasn't very good. We'll just sort of try something else. Anyway, Ted wants to take the boats in the front door, straight in at the front doors of Stromness Bay. And I said, well, you know, we ruled that out. Um, can't you go around the back? Can't go around the back. And the next bay up, I can't remember what it's called, Fortuna Bay or something like that. It's got kelp in it. It's got ice in it. He's going to have to go in the front. And again, here's another remarkable thing. The weather has actually improved. And that is the plan we go with. He's, we're going to slip Andrew in the front door and put the boats over the side, and then they're going to go off into, into the bay. And um, the weather is just, it's just... I mean, the seas are like a mill pond now. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's unreal, isn't it? Um, so dear old Antrim, and they're very confident they can get away with it, uh, slip in... Oh, uh, you'll have my moonlight type stuff and the slip into Stromness Bay. The boats go over the other side. It's just like, as I say, like a mill pond. You can hear the, the water just lapping against the hull. And they're taking a bit of time to get over the side or, or to get the engines working over, over the side. And poor old Antrim's beginning to drift ever so slowly towards some rocks over the way. Still no sort of can't get on with it from the Navy. They're just... I see, cool, aren't they? I was really, really impressed with the Navy, I tell you, big time. And uh, although we're giving them all this grief, Ted down there can only get two engines working out of five. <laughs> Antrim's drifting towards rocks. And they like, come on, we've got to get on with this. And he and he says, look, just go, I'll tow them in, which we do. So Antrim turns herself on a sixpence with some more sort of skill from the Royal Navy, and slide their way out of Stromness Bay. I was on the bridge wing, you know, anxiously looking down. They disappeared. And I feel this slight breeze on the nape of my neck, and I know that's not good, you know, because it's coming from behind. 
anybody should come in from the front. And two minutes later, three minutes later, catabatic it winged. It pounds down through the bay. And from a mill pond, you're up to about six foot waves. And here he is with his paddles. <laughs> you know. working out of five. You know, trying to... And I don't know what the ratio is, what the, <laughs> the even even with good conditions, you know, that wouldn't work. But it certainly didn't work. And uh, they two boats went adrift, and that's what they were doing, trying to paddle ashore. Yeah, so to abbreviate this, Ted does get ashore, he does get eyes on, and he's, the information starts flowing back. But in the process, we've lost two boats. Don't know where they are. The following morning... Dear old Humphrey goes up again. Uh, Brian Young is the captain of Antrim, and the task group commander allows Humphrey to go out to have a look for these missing boats. And Chris does some sums. I mean, he's clever, Chris. He becomes an admiral eventually. And they sort of work out where to, where they look. Now, I always imagined, until I spoke to Chris very recently and writing the book, that actually they found Chippy Carpenter's boat. Uh, he really is called Chippy Carpenter. <laughs> Chippy's boat... About, you know, a number of miles down the coast, a couple of miles offshore. I discovered that it actually picked up Chippy, 62 miles offshore. And they got out there in about an eight or ten hour period, so you can work out the sums yourself. I mean, they're moving fast with this wind. But here's the most remarkable thing about it. So is Chippy still in the boat? Chippy, Chippy Carpenter and his, other, and his crew are in this Gemini with no engine, and they're 62 miles offshore when they're found. And and on their way to South Africa. Well, well, they might hit South Africa. It could be even further around. Um, but they're you know they're facing the prospect of a lonely death, and I stress that because Chippy has heard a helicopter for a while, doing its sort of a search, going back and forth, and uh, he has a, a Sabi rescue beacon on him, but he doesn't open up on that because he's not sure it's not enemy. And then they catch sight. And, and Chris will tell you that they're just about to give up because they're running short of fuel and they must go back and give up the search. They haven't found anything. Chippy just catches sight of uh, Humphrey and at that moment. He comes out of a fog bank and they recognise it as a Wessex and they know that Wessex is us. And only at that stage does he open up the Sabi beacon and then, they, of course, the helicopter's got it straight away and dies in and rescues them. But if he hadn't done that, he would have been out at... Well, he would have died out there. I mean, that is um, a calculated and cool courage. So... I think I'm feeling better about my own chaotic life. That the fact that the most highly trained elite military unit on earth basically has had the most catastrophic be- beginning start to this campaign. I mean, I think that's there's a lesson there for everyone, and it, it reminds me of the old Churchill misquote that success is about staggering from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Is that is that how you guys felt when you just you just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other? Have you? That's exactly it. There was no way that all the way through the campaign, I think we we were doing that. You know, if it went right, we would just sort of pat each other on the back and say, "Well, that was good, wasn't it? Yeah, that went okay." But if it didn't go right, then you know we'd regroup and and try it again, and we come out the other side. I think I make an adjustment as well, actually, which, I mean, which should have sort of been obvious to me before, but um, you're concentrating on confounding the enemy, but 
you, you made me realize actually we could confound ourselves if we weren't bloody careful. I mean, we had just put the entire operation at risk big time. If you, you know, if it had been really dramatic loss of life at the same time as loss of helicopters, I mean, that was not a good start to any campaign. And this, and it was tenuous at that point, you know. And if that had got out, then well, could it have damaged national will? It might have done. How old? How old were you? Oh, thirty. I don't know. <laughs> Young. <laughs> and and did, I mean, how did you, on a personal level, cope with that extraordinary, I mean, anxiety, were you able to sleep? I mean, how, there was a lot resting on your shoulders. Well, it gnaws away, but we actually draw strength on one another, actually. Uh, so, yeah, you just sort of get through it. But I, I would stress this again. You know, there was no recriminations, neither from Guy Sheridan, the Marines, nor the Navy at this time. They had every right <laughs> Right, they didn't. Um, lay on, lay on. It's only looking. Sorry, it's only looking back on it that I realise, you know, what a close run thing it was. Because all the time, okay, we met setback after setback, but okay, well, you know, we'll do it this way next time. We'll do it that way next time. There was no time that we turned around and said, you know, this this can't be done. You know, and and uh, there was no at no time did we doubt each other. I think that that that's that's part of our training, I suppose, that we can be very proud of, because when when anybody was asked to step up to the line, they did, you know, in spades. I think that, I think that was across the task force, yeah. uh, and and later when we we joined the Toronto task force proper, that sort of confidence. I, I think we were always going to win. Mm. It's extraordinary yeah. that always going to win. We we couldn't possibly lose. Yeah. Uh, you know, we went through. Uh, we went through, a, you know, a few evolutions on that. I think uh, the Navy in particular were, you know, very confident. And then when they lost Sheffield later on, uh, there was a mood change in the task force. Then, mm. you know, they just became more quietly determined in their determination on their uh, their confidence. Of winning, you know, it became a slightly different sort of de- uh, confidence. But they were always confident. Um, it was less whatever the word might be. And then and then things continue on. Well, um, what happens next? Um, what happens next is the, you know we become more aware of the Argentinians. The aircraft turn up, um, C one thirties and Boeing's in sort of surveillance role, so something's up. Endurance hears what can only be a, sub, a transmission from a submarine, so a submarine's turned up in the area, and then I say that gets your undivided attention when you're sitting on six six foot waves and. Not knowing what your next move is going to be, and the navy become, you know, they're they're after a submarine, and you know they they have no time for anything else. <laughs> they're after the submarine. I think they have a word for it: search to destruction. I think it's called, and they're going to find this thing and they're going to destroy it. But it's the only option with a submarine. You can't take a submarine prisoner. You, you know, you have to find it and you have to destroy it. It's bloody harsh business. And, that, and actually, that's another observation too. I think. You know, all warfare is sort of hard edge, but naval warfare is particularly hard edge. And if it goes wrong, it goes catastrophically wrong. You know, the whole bloody ship goes or something. Now, anyway, there's, this sort of thing is very apparent in their search to destruction. They're going to find this bloody something. And, and uh, the extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary thing in this actually is, uh, is that somehow, somewhere, somebody's have worked out, they knew, I think, when the submarine had left, Argentina were likely to turn. Yes, yeah, extraordinary. They sort of worked out this thing had left, and then they worked out this endurance. They're very clever at the squiggly stuff. You know, they you know they sort of they've picked up on a radio. There was a one transmission this poor submarine had to make because they were having problems as well, and they calculate that this submarine will be coming out 
of Cumberland Bay the following morning at such and such a time, having done such and such. To a brief long story, they go into anti-submarine mode, they work out what they're doing, Captain Young, and, you know, they're, they're now in the full, full bore naval warfare without any complications from the bloody SAS. <laughs> this is their business now. Um, they move, they move um, their RFA away with the, uh, the tanking, the, uh, the, the refueling air ship um, with the marine company on it. They get that out of the way. It goes almost 200 miles away, I think. And then concentrate on this, on this submarine. Humphrey is put up to go and look in Cumberland Bay the following morning. Uh, Brilliant has joined us. Uh, Sandy Woodward realises we're short of helicopters, short of anti-submarine uh, warfare ships. So he sends one of the best, Brilliant. A captain by Sam Carter, who we love, mm-hmm. we 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 learn, um, a great man. And um, her helicopters do another bit of South Georgia. Anyway, again to abbreviate this story, lo and behold, following morning, Humphrey finds a submarine coming out of such and such a time out of Cumberland Bay and attacks it with Second World War death charges, <laughs> blow it up. Um, this turns around and the whole operation's changed. There's no need for all this careful reconnaissance on you know there's is this that decisive moment thing people talk about so the argentinians are now aware that you are sitting offshore they, we attacked this submarine um in the in the, the mouth of cumberland bay they can hear it going on and the submarine turns around tries to get back into great Britain, comes around the corner in full view of great Britain and the argentine garrison they see helicopters swarming all over this poor Submarine. It's been attacked by Humphrey with depth charges. The there are some uh, couple. Uh, the, the ones from Brilliant. They they've dropped a torpedo and that didn't quite get it. But they're they're now attacking it with everything else they can. Even I mean, pilots have even drawn pistols from their holsters to have a go. And that's on their area. Endurances um, and Plymouths um, wasps turn up and they they attack it with missiles. There's all this is happening in front of Group Vicken. It's, it, you know, the Argentinians are, you know, shocked, I would guess, and we recognise that they would be. And so there's this decisive moment thing. And I, I was on the, uh, the lower bridge of Antrim at this time because, you, you know, we're over, almost over the horizon somewhere, sort of racing forward. And there was a moment when the battle ensigns cracked out. And no one needed to tell me what that meant. We're engaging the enemy. Away you go. Um, no man would do anything wrong, but you know, lay, lay your ship alongside. And all that. So we're dashing in down on this sort of thing. It's like something out of a Second World War movie, really. And... Um, I'm with a naval naval officer. He says, this changes everything. And I said, well, what do you mean it changes everything? He said, we've got them now. They, you know, they're reeling. Well, why are we doing all this reconnaissance stuff? We don't need to do this. We need to attack them. I said, oh, yeah, but, you know, we need to know a little bit more. And I slip into staff college, you know, careful mode. <laughs> and then I realized after a few minutes of this patronizing stuff to this naval officer, shit, he's right. <laughs> you know, we've got to go. And you're, you're, I'm, not, I'm not claiming to recognise the decisive overthrow. I think the naval officer did. And I take it to Guy Sheridan, and he may or may not have been having the same thoughts. But the fact is, we, you know, we need to go in, and that's what we did. Unfortunately, then, the Royal Marines that should be doing it are not there. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.